1: Good afternoon, uh, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Len Calabrese, the press president of the City Club's Board of Directors, and uh, proud to uh, be a member. And I'm pleased to introduce today's program. Uh, our speaker, the director of the Pediatric Residency Program, at Hurley Medical Center in Flint, Michigan, and author of What the Eyes Don't See, a Story of Crisis, Resistance, and Hope in an American City, Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha. Today marks the 49th anniversary of the Cuyahoga River Fire of 1969. That fire did two things. It put Cleveland in the pages of Time Magazine in a widely read report on the state of our nation's environmental problems, which led to the passage of the Clean Water Act and the first Earth Day celebration. And it began a conversation on environmental stewardship and social justice that has endured for decades. It seems appropriate then that we're here today to discuss the implications of another water crisis that captured the nation's attention. The lead poisoning endured by the residents of Flint, Michigan due to toxins in the tap water. Most of us here remember that moment about three years ago when the national media descended on Flint, Michigan, a switch in drinking water sources from Lake Huron and the Detroit River to the Flint River had caused nearly 100,000 residents to be exposed to dangerous amounts of lead. Those most affected were children whose blood levels doubled, lead blood levels doubled, or in some cases tripled after the switch was made, resulting in developmental and behavioral problems. The research that revealed that crisis was conducted by today's speaker. Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, a first-generation Iraqi immigrant and Detroit-raised pediatrician, paved the way for government officials in Flint to acknowledge the extent of the lead crisis in the water, resulting in $100 million in federal and $250 million in state funding to address the failing infrastructure that caused the crisis and to combat its effects. Personally, she remains committed to ensuring the health of Flint's children as the director of the Pediatric Public Health Initiative and founder of the Flint Child Health and Development Fund. For her efforts, Dr. Hannah Atisha has received countless awards, including being the co-recipient of the first MIT Media Lab Disobedience Award for embodying the idea that, quote, <laughs> the idea that, quote, science and scholarship are as powerful tools for social change as art and protest, unquote. Her fight against environmental injustice, how the residents of Flint prevailed, and what we can do to prevent future public health crises, as outlined in her book, which was published just this week, What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to our podium today's speaker, Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha.
2: Thank you, Uh, it is great to be in Cleveland. It is uh, great to be at your City Club. I loved hearing about the history of this place, this long standing history, the incredible speakers you've brought in, your commitment to dialogue and to being educated and informed. So it is an honor to be here with you. So thank you, thank you, Cleveland. Um, And I am super excited to share with you um, my story, um, the Flint story, uh, very much a story of crisis. But even more so, a story of resistance. Um, And even more than that, a story of hope. And I very much want to share um, the hope that we are building and that same kind of hope that we can build for, for all of our children everywhere. So, besides being really kind of an action back, an action packed retelling um, of the water crisis, uh, Oprah just put this book on her summer reading list, and she said it was a Grisham style, like you know, page turner. Um, So it is, it is a little bit um, of that. So yay, Oprah! But uh, the book, um, like the title alludes, is is about um, it's about people. It is about problems. It is about places that we choose not to see. Um, you know that's happening to those people who are far away in a certain demographic, and the book is a charge for all of us. Um, to open our eyes um, and to see these problems, um, and not only to be awake to what's happening, um, but but to make a difference. Uh, the book is very much, and the story is very much a testament to the idea that individuals, especially working together in a multidisciplinary team, um, can truly make, make a difference. So as you hopefully know by now, and as was mentioned, Flint is kind of the story of really the most emblematic environmental and public health disaster um, of this young century. Um, so actually the Flint River caught on fire twice in our history too, um, but that's not what made us famous recently. Um, and it is, um, it's a story of what happens when the very people responsible for keeping us safe, for keeping our children safe, care more about saving money, um, care more about power and control um, than they care about us. So our crisis very much manifested in our water. So you guys all have, have water in front of you. We, we, we To this day, we can't do that in Flint. We still cannot drink our tap water. Um, so our crisis manifested in our water, in the bodies of really the most vulnerable among us, in the children who ate and, and drank that water, in the babies who guzzled babe, bottles and bottles of formula mixed with that tap water. Um, but what happened in Flint is not an isolated story. Uh, it is not unique to Flint. What happened in Flint really speaks to the deeper crises that we are facing right now in our nation. Uh, the crises of a breakdown in democracy from voter disenfranchisement and, and gerrymandering, uh, a crisis in the, in the breakdown of critical infrastructure. We, we think our roads and our bridges are, are bad. What's, what's underneath is, is probably even worse. Um, It is a crisis of ongoing environmental injustices everywhere. Flint is not the first time we've had a known case of environmental injustice. It's ongoing. They plague many of our most vulnerable populations, predominantly our, our poor and minority populations. What happened in Flint is is an example of disrespect for science, which we are seeing nationally right now. The science of climate change, the science of vaccines, the science of public health regulations that protect our air and water are under attack right now. Um, Flint is also a story about the abandonment really of our our civic responsibility, our deep obligations as as human beings to to care and, and provide. Um, for all of us, and I, I don't think this is, I mean, what's happening this week is a reminder of how this is happening in our nation right now um, in regards to how we care, we care for children. If we stop believing that government um, can protect our public welfare and, and keep all of our children safe, not just our privileged ones, all of them, um, what do we have left? Um, it begs the question, um, who are we uh, as a society? So in in my book, um, there's a lot of history in my book. Uh, there's public health history and, and lead history and some family history. And it is so important for us to learn history because we are so good at repeating our mistakes. Um, and I want to touch a little bit on how Flint is a reminder of how intimately connected our environment is to our public health. Um, and public health, as, as the history of public health, the the role of government in public health is is fairly new. Um, It's fairly new that government became involved in protecting the public health of its citizens. So as a field of science, public health rose up with our cities. Um, So as people kind of crowded into smaller areas, diseases spread faster. Um, Wood and coal kind of fires polluted the air. Um, Running water was rare. Sewage Uh, sewers even rarer you know sewage was in seats so so that's when public health started getting involved really the time of the industrial revolution and when i think of that time i think of one of my my favorite heroes in the world of public health it's a guy named john snow has anybody ever heard of john snow not the Game of Thrones, John Snow. So ok, it's different John Snow. So, ok, there's a few public health folks here. So John Snow was like this rebel of his time in nineteenth century London. Um he's the Broad Street pump guy. so he he bucked, he bucked uh, the common conventional wisdom um, of nineteenth century London. So at that time, everybody thought that these raging cholera epidemics were because London had stinky air. So there was something called miasma in London, which literally meant stinky air. So the air really smelled. And the public health community and the doctors are like, we need to get rid of this stinky air. So they took um, people's cesspools, like where they went to the bathroom, and they dumped that water. They made sewage and drainage systems that went right into the Thames, like where they got their drinking water. And he's like, you know, he was an anesthesiologist Training and he's like a jack of all trades, he like he's a master physician, epidemiologist. And he's like, Well, I don't think it's stinky air that is causing people to have cholera. I think it's actually contaminated water. Um, and I think, you know, there's a certain pump that's contaminated, and I think it's it's being spread that way. And I think our solutions are actually creating, are, is, are worsening the problem. Um, and he used science to to literally speak truth to power um, and to prove um, through mapping um, that it was this, actually this, this contaminated pump that, that was causing this disease to spread. Something else that he understood, which we increasingly in this day fail to understand, is that Science. the purpose of science is to improve our communities and to improve the human condition. The purpose of science is not to live in ivory towers. It is not to live in publications that no one reads. It is not to live in journals and in, with grants and, and tenure. It is meant to serve communities. Our science needs to work hand in hand with communities to, to improve um, vital problems that we face. And, and he fundamentally um, got that. Uh, And because of of his work, um, we now have safer drinking water. We don't have cholera epidemics. Um, He saved countless, countless lives because he bucked a trend and he used um, science to fight the status quo. So also during that same historic time in the 19th century, the time of the Industrial Revolution, um, I have another hero, Charles Dickens. So he was a novelist. He, he was a social critic, but he was also a child advocate. Um, his eyes were always kind of wide open to the, the dark alleys of the Industrial Revolution. Um, he he wrote about the inequities that children's face, the, the injustices, and they were always at the center of his stories. So I want to read you something that he, he wrote from, from Great Expectations. In the little world in which children have their existence, there is nothing so finely perceived and so finely felt as injustice. It may be only small injustice that the child can be exposed to, but the child is small and the world is small. The feelings of children are as vulnerable as their health. And those injustices during Dickens' time played out over, over their lifetime, actually played out over their life expectancy. So back, back in that day, the average life expectancy of an upper-class gentleman in London was 45 years. Um, the average tradesman lived up to the age of 25. Um, the, a member of the working poor lived up to the ripe age of 16. Um, of reported deaths of that time, 62% were kids under the age of five. So we've come a long way, right? So our urban environments, um, the places that our children go up are, are absolutely less lethal um, than they were. Absolutely, we have, we have made tremendous problems, tremendous progress, we've also made problems. Oh, we've made tremendous progress. Um, but, but our children continue to face insurmountable um, injustices because to this day, the environments of the cities that we live in, the dirt, the air, the violence, the hopelessness, the stress, the water—literally can still predict how long we have to live. Literally, the number of minutes allotted us to in, in this earth. So let's get back to Flint and and what was happening to our environment. Um, So it was the summer of 2015, and I was going about my my usual job as a pediatrician. Uh, I'm a medical educator. I I teach medical students and residents. I have one of my former medical students here, Wave. She's tweeting. She's a former tweeter. She's an amazing tweeter. (laughs) So I, uh, my job is to to train future pediatricians. Uh, I was busy with my home. I was, we may have two little kids, and we had just moved our clinic, and my husband just had shoulder surgery. So I was busy, just like you're all busy with your home and your work. And I was kind of in my own little isolated bubble of my life, like we often tend to be in. When... out of pure serendipity, um, a high school girlfriend came over for our last minute barbecue, two high school girlfriends, um, and with our little kids, and we're, we're having fun, we're eating a glass of wine in our hand. And my high school girlfriend um, happens to be a drinking water expert. Who knew? Uh, and she happened to work formerly at the EPA. And she happened to have seen a memo released by her former colleague at the EPA uh, raising red flags about Flint water. And she turns to me, she's like, Mona, she's like, you're in Flint. I'm like, yeah. And she's like, um, the water is like, something's wrong with your water. The water, I'm like, oh, it's okay. I You know, I see patients every day and my patients ask me about the water because it smells weird and tastes gross and it looks funny and we had bacteria in it. But but the state said everything was okay. So I keep telling my patients every single day that everything is okay and not to waste your money buying bottled water. I just saw, you know, just, just yesterday I told her, I had a kid, I had a mom, she wanted to stop breastfeeding, I told her, you know, stay, keep breastfeeding, but, you know, she wanted to know if she should use the tap water, and I said, yes, use the tap water, there is nothing wrong with the tap water, because this is America, this is not 19th century cholera epidemics, there's laws, and there's rules on the book, but most of all, this is Michigan, so, any Michiganders here, native Michigan, okay, so those of us from Michigan, we are the Mitten State, you got the handout, so... Point to where you're from in michigan so awesome so um so here's detroit and ann arbor and lansing and grand rapids and we also have an upper peninsula but we forget about them but but yeah. the, so this we are the mitten state so why are we the mitten state what are we surrounded by water and we share that water with you guys so we are surrounded we will share it so we are surrounded by the Great Lakes okay the Great Lakes are the largest source of fresh water in the world so like how is it, how can our water not be okay but despite all that despite even being in Michigan we have We have laws, right? And we have regulations, and we have people whose fundamentally their only job is to make sure that when we turn on our tap, our water is okay. So, how can our water not be okay? And, like, I'm not totally naive, but really, how can our water not be okay? Um, And she told me, she's like, well, it sounds like Flint's not treating their water properly. Uh, First of all, nobody goes from a great water source like the Great Lakes to a poor quality water source like the Flint River, which caught on fire twice. It was a kind of legacy of industrial pollution. Um, But despite that, it's not. It was. It's not being treated properly with something called corrosion control. And I'm like, what the heck is corrosion control? I'm a pediatrician. I don't know about water uh, testing or quality or treatment. And she's like, well, without corrosion control, there's going to be lead in your water. Ugh, lead. Um, and that was the very, very first time I heard the word lead. I heard about our bacteria and the odor and the quality. The color issues, and but I was re- being, I was reassured, just like everybody in government was reassuring us. Um, but at that moment, I heard the word lead, and when a pediatrician or anybody in public health hears the word lead, um, we kind of freak out um, because we know what lead does. It is a known form of environmental injustice, a form of environmental racism. It already disproportionately impacts. Our kids, just like it impacts Detroit kids and Cleveland kids and Chicago kids and Baltimore kids and Philadelphia kids. Um, we have learned so much about lead in the last few decades. We know it is a potent, irreversible neurotoxin. It impacts cognition and behavior, it uh, co- impacts almost every organ system, and we know it can alter a child's entire life course trajectory. This incredible science has now taught us that levels we thought were really okay back in the day are not okay anymore. And we now know that there is no safe level. And once you detect it in a child, it just tells you that there's an environmental problem. So our focus needs to be detecting it in the environment before children are tested and exposed. So knowing all this, um, was really kind of my call to action to see what was going on. And so very quickly, how did this happen? So Flint was in an almost bankruptcy state. We lost democracy. We were under state-appointed emergency management. The emergency manager's only job was austerity to save money. No regard for public health, environmental health, children's health. And in a cost-cutting move, decided to switch uh, from the Great Lakes to the Flint River until a new pipeline was to be built um so our the water we were getting from the flint river was 19 times more corrosive than the water that we had been getting from the great lakes it was so corrosive that just a few months after our water switch general motors which is was born in flint and still has plants in flint stopped using this water because it was corroding their engine parts so think about this, our water. Just, this was a full year prior to my research. Their water was corroding our engine parts. So imagine what it was doing to our aging infrastructure that was predominantly um, lead-based. Um, Jesse Jackson called Flint a crime scene. Michael Moore, who's who's from, from Flint, um, said that the water crisis was not a mistake, calling it a racial crisis that would not have happened in a richer or wider community. But there is another part of this story, and there's another side of Flint, and there is another lesson um, that needs to be learned, because Flint is also the story of how we came together and how we fought back and how we resisted. So before this water crisis, what was Flint famous for? Cars! So cars, birthplace of cars. And extra credit, who knows what it's even more famous for after the birthplace of cars? So once cars started being made, um, the auto workers um, were taken advantage of. And they d- started to demand a role in the prosperity that the, the industry was, was benefiting from. Uh, there was no protections for occupational health, they were losing limbs, there was no benefits, there was no disabilities. So in the late 1930s, Flint was almost, also famous for um, the historic sit down strikes where auto workers literally sat down, stopped General Motors production, and for 44 days demanded um, dignity, and demanded decent wages, and demanded occupational health and safety. And what happened in Flint uh, created the UAW and created the birth of the middle class in America. Uh, It was called the Grand Bargain, and people began to have benefits and great schools and great infrastructure. And what happened there informed wages across the country for decades. At one point, Flint had the highest per capita income in the country. Immigrants and uh, folks from the South and the Great Migration North came to Flint for great living wage jobs. So that is our history, and that is our legacy, and that is the pride and and that steel plated resilience of the people of Flint it's a place where many people have, have been pushed down before and many have risen where many have fought that good fight and many have won Um, so we took a line from their playbook, and we resisted, so when I heard about the possibility of of lead and water, I thought about all my Flint kids, because as a pediatrician, I got lots of fellow pediatricians here, it's our job to make sure that kids are healthy today, we we take care of their ear infections, and we do their well baby visits, but more importantly, our jobs as pediatricians is is to make sure that our kids have the brightest future ahead of them, so much of what we do is prevention, we literally took an oath as physicians to stand up, to be healers and protectors um, for our kids children and what was happening in the water was was really threatening the tomorrows of all of these kids so I did something that that doctors and academics are are not supposed to do and this is why I won that crazy MIT disobedience award which was really difficult to explain to my children that I got a disobedience (laughs) award (laughs) So, so I I I released this research before it was peer reviewed, before it was published, and that's like an academic no no. But doing that, going through that process takes months and months and months, and our kids did not have another another day. So I literally walked out of my clinic and I stood up with the evidence that our children were being exposed um, to lead in their water, and just like everyone else in the story, the moms, the activists, the pastors, the journalists, the water scientists, um, I was. I was attacked, um, and I was dismissed, and I was discredited. Um, the states that I was wrong. They called me an unfortunate researcher. That I was spreading near hysteria, which is great because it's also sexist. Um, and and. For a minute, I, I believed them. I'm like, oh, my God, I've made a terrible mistake. Every The whole state says I'm wrong, and they actually have more data than I do. Um, and I was scared, and I felt sick, and there was literally a knot in my stomach that that wouldn't go away, and I stopped eating, which was a good side effect. Anyways, um, but then, but then I, I knew that this... this was not about numbers. So, so often as, as academics, we work with numbers and statistics and, you know, all this evidence. And every single one of those numbers that was in my research was a kid. It was a child and probably a child I had cared for in the last year or so. And it was those kids that, that woke me up and that, enabled me to to keep fighting. Um, And it was finally our science, our persistence, our disobedience um, that spoke truth to power. Um, And the state finally conceded that, yes, there was a problem. So to this day in Flint, we are still on filtered and bottled water um, as our damaged corroded lead pipes are being replaced. Um, we will soon be the only the third city that is has replaced their, their lead pipes. Uh, there is lead in plumbing everywhere, including in Cleveland, especially in the Northeast and the Midwest. Uh, we didn't restrict lead in our plumbing until 1986 in our service lines, which are the lines that go from our water main to our homes. But get this, we didn't restrict lead in our brass fixtures until 2014. Uh, so Flint schools had no lead lines, but we had some of the highest water lead levels because the fixtures were were leaching lead. Um, and that's why week after week, we are now hearing about more and more schools that are testing and more and more cities that are testing. It has awakened the nation's conscience and reminded the nation that we actually have an ongoing lead issue that we have to address. But in Flint, we are moving forward. It is a city that, a very resilient city where we have rolled up our sleeves and we have come together Um, to make sure that our children not only recover, um, but but thrive. We are building this model public health program, which I am so lucky and privileged to be able to lead, uh, where we are leaning on this incredible science of brain development and toxic stress and resilience to buffer the impact of this crisis. Um, Flint kids already had so many obstacles to their development. We have about a 60% poverty rate, one of the most violent crime rates in the city, no full service grocery stores. Uh, crumbling schools, depopulation, lack of safe places to play. All of these things are developmental obstacles for kids. All of these things are are known as toxic stresses um, for children, which when you have so many of them, it it can cause, it it can alter a child's entire life course trajectory and really mess up their brain development and and their risk of chronic diseases and, and even their life expectancy. So we are addressing all of that. And sometimes I say, Um, in clinic especially, that I'm writing now prescriptions for hope. Um, But it's not Just words. Our hope is not just you're going to be okay. It is with real science based interventions. So in Flint now, we have um, doubled the capacity of our home visiting programs, supporting parents and caregivers, Um, evidence based interventions in our clinics that also support parents and caregivers, huge expansion of early literacy. I'm so excited that your bookseller supports early literacy. Um, That is a big part of our work. Um, In places like Flint and maybe in Cleveland, kids have a word deficit. Uh, often in some of these places by the time they've reached the age of three they've heard 30 million less words by the time you know they're in kindergarten the achievement gap is already there so we need to support them with a rich, word-rich environment. Um, Now in Flint, every kid gets a book mailed to them every single month from the age of zero to five. Huge expansion of Reach Out and Read, which is an evidence-based clinic program. Um, The NBA, who's been phenomenal, especially the National Basketball Players Association, the Union of Athletes, has just funded a newborn literacy program. Every baby born in the hospital gets a bundle of books and developmental toys and gets signed up for home visiting early intervention. Um, We have two brand new high-quality childcare centers. Year-round, free, highest quality child care center with a blend of state and federal dollars. One is an Educare center, which is this really awesome high quality child care center, which offers parenting support and family engagement. We have expansion of Medicaid and mental health services. Uh, mindfulness. Our kids in Flint schools do like yoga and meditation every single day, which is really, really awesome. Uh, mobile grocery stores. And all of these are things that all kids need. This is not this is not like rocket science. This is These are things that all all kids need at a population level to make sure that they succeed um, and then we're also working on the bigger things because one of the most important things I can prescribe is, is living wage jobs for parents so our recovery is bringing in jobs and we now are hiring school nurses and researchers and developmental specialists and early on folks and plumbers and pipe fitters um, it's bringing back that grand bargain that I talked about earlier that Flint is so famous for So working on that economic development, that participatory democracy, restorative justice, and self-determination for the city. So although our kids were exposed to this water crisis, uh, exposed preventable, you know, this man-made crisis that exposed an entire population to a neurotoxin, one of many toxic stresses that we already had, we are doing everything that we can to to tip the scale for these kids because we have to because these kids deserve no less. Um, And that gets to my favorite part of of the story and of the book. Um, It is about how all of us have the power um, to open our eyes and to fix things, um, no matter who we are. No matter what we do, if we are a teacher or an accountant or a mom or an activist or a retired person or a doctor, wh- who, whatever we are, um, we, we, we have the power to make a difference. And also, no matter how we ended up in this country. So um, I am an immigrant. We came here when I was four. Um, we were fleeing the regime of Saddam Hussein. Who remember him? Brutal dictator um, in Iraq. Uh, we were fleeing uh, fascism and oppression, and we came to this country um, for the American dream, and we came for freedom, and we came for opportunity, and we came for democracy. So I'm—I was that little girl that I. When I see these images this week of those little—that little girl at the border who's f- fighting for that same dream, I. I see that girl, I was that girl in a sense, not exactly, but in a sense. Um, and we came here um, for those opportunities and, 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 and I, was, I every day wake up um, privileged and fortunate and grateful to be in this country and to be able to serve, but also very much recognizing that injustices um, are everywhere and they're happening everywhere and that we need to be fighting for all children no matter where they come from and what they look like and what their citizenship <laughs> is. So as MLK said, whatever ship brought us here, we are in this boat together. We can work together to create a better, a safer world, a place where all children develop without obstacles and barriers. We can come together and each be a piece of the answer, not just for Flint, but places everywhere that are just like Flint. There are kids everywhere growing up in the same toxic environments as our kids in Flint, where children uh, are bearing the the brunt of life's hardest blows and live with that poverty, that violence, that hopelessness. And just as we are in Flint trying to build resilient children, I think we can work on building resilient families, resilient cities, resilient communities, and even a resilient country. So a country like ours can endure trauma and neglect, um, and once again be a place where democracy and equality and opportunity are encouraged and advance. And I think this is absolutely where healing begins. Uh, This is my story. Uh, This is the Flint story. This is the story of the book. Um, It's a story of, like I said, crisis, resistance, and hope. Thank you, guys.
1: Today we're enjoying a forum with Dr. Mona Ana Atisha, director of the Pediatric Residency Program at Hurley Medical Center in Flint, Michigan, and author of What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. So we're now about to begin the audience question and answer phase. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it. Uh, at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are membership and customer service manager Corey Isler and Youth Forum Council Chair Teolu Orsanya. So we may have the first question, please.
0: Uh, Dr. Mona, the um, Uh, One of the things you hear about in national politics these days is a phenomenon called science denial. Yeah. And you hear about it especially in context of uh, global warming and things like that. And I wonder how much of that, was part of the story that you were dealing with up there in Flint.
2: Absolutely, so Flint is an example where common sense science was denied. You did not need evidence of children being exposed. That was too late. We had the evidence in the water. We had water level evidence. But like I shared, General Motors stopped using this water because it was corroding into parts. I mean like you don't need to be a physician or a scientist to, to prove, to to know that something was wrong. So Flint is very much a case of what's happening nationally, this trend of science denial, but it's also a story where science ultimately spoke truth to power. And we are very much leaning on science right now. the the amazing science of brain development and resilience in our recovery efforts. Uh, So I think we have to all be on guard And what's happening. You you mentioned it um, with with the climate change denial. This is going to threaten the futures of so many uh, many of our children. We are going to, uh, if we don't accept the facts, we are going to leave a legacy, a a catastrophic legacy for our children. Uh, We also see it with with vaccines, with the vaccine denial community. Um, But more importantly, like I mentioned, we see it uh, with what's happening Happening with the EPA right now, where we're, the EPA's th- really being permanently dismantled, where the science of a lot of the regulations to protect our air and our water quality, our food supply, are, are also being threatened. Uh, so I think we have to be on guard and we have to learn the lessons of Flint. Oh, sorry, I forgot. I'm breaking all the rules. Don't touch the mic. <laughs> don't touch the mic. <laughs> and also, don't um, make statements. But I, I can't um, I can't stand here and not thank you for the amazing work that you've done. You. And, you. and for sharing it with us through a book. Thank you. I think that's an incredible way to um, spread the thank message. You. My question, um, we have a... a crisis of lead poisoning here in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. What would you advise us um, to empower both individuals um, to act and also for our policymakers to act in an effective and impactful way? Yeah. So there is lead everywhere, Uh, not only in our plumbing, but in our paint, uh, in our soil, because we used lead in gasoline for so long. Vis a almost a full chapter in my book about the evil history of lead. Um, we have known about the evils of lead for a long time. The Romans uh, put it in their plumbing, actually put it in their food, and many people hypothesize the demise of the Romans is because they've used so much lead in everything. So it is probably one of the oldest and most well studied neurotoxins. Um, and it's something, unlike so many of our environmental exposures, like it's it's clear, like there's no safe level. Like in others, like, oh, we have to have like a certain action levels, or isn't that? So so we know. And not only do we know how bad it is and what we need to do, we need to do something called primary prevention, which in the public health the world is never exposing a population to this. We also actually know the economic benefit of lead elimination. Um, if we eliminated lead exposure, we would save 80 billion dollars a year as a nation from decreased um, uh, economic productivity, special education costs, healthcare costs, criminal justice costs. Mm -hmm. This led economists, like this is well known, even the economic benefit, and you'd figure that would like speak to policymakers. but the problem is the economic benefit is something you do not see for for decades. um, And it's often after their term limits or kind of their short-sightedness. So it requires, Vigilance and it requires education and it even requires educating providers who are have often been kind of um, so part of the title of my book it's um, It gets at a saying that one of my former mentors in Detroit used to say. He used to say, "Um, "The eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know." Uh, So, like you know, I would I took care of dozens and dozens of kids with lead poisoning, and I never once to asked ever about their water because I never you know before this crisis like admission I never knew there was lead in plumbing. And do you guys know that like what the word lead means? It means plumbing. So do you remember the high school elemental symbol of lead, high school chemistry? PB, it comes from the Latin plumbum, plumbing. So lead actually always means plumbing. It's meant plumbing. I didn't even know we had lead in our plumbing until this crisis hit. And I was ignorantly, um, you know assuming that their source of exposure was a bazillion other things. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen to, to educate folks um, a, about this and, and it's and it's hard because we are in this climate of science denial uh, where industry has the upper hand. there are still folks right now who who are lead deniers um, academics, pediatricians even because they are paid by as expert witnesses on lead cases. Um, the lead industry is also, this is also my book. It's it's they've never paid for their harm. So unlike tobacco or asbestos, they've never paid for the evil. Uh, there's actually a lawsuit right now on appeal in California where they're trying to go after the, like Sherwin Williams and the paint companies for this work. So it's it's uh, it has a an, an evil past. Uh, we need to we need to finally not kick the can for our children. We know what it does, the science is there. Uh, We need to put in the investments to to invest in the infrastructure work, in the homes and underground, to to no longer have one other child uh, preventably exposed. Good luck. And that's one of the great things about Flint, uh, because before Flint, like, you know, like, we took care of lead. The, you know, kids' lead levels have been coming down for decades. Uh, we got rid of lead from paint and gasoline. It's okay. And one of the great side effects or ripple effects of Flint is that people are like, oh, yeah, you know, it was a problem of, of yesterday, but it's a problem of today, and it's a for sure a problem of tomorrow.
0: Uh, thank you so much. My question today is um, how do, what evidence did you take to the public? Were you measuring serum lead levels? Were you measuring neurologic or hematologic effects? And... How much of an ongoing issue will this be 15, 20 years from now?
2: Great question. So, it was the easiest research project I've ever done in my life. So, as pediatricians, we, Uh, we routinely screen children for lead exposure at the ages of one and two. Uh, Not all children, uh, usually children who are uh, are high risk, so kids on Medicaid, which serves as a proxy for poverty. Um, So we, uh, and we screen at those ages because that's when developmentally, children are walking and crawling and they have hand to mouth activity and they're at risk for household lead exposure like paint and dust. Um, so, I just went back and I looked at children's lead levels that were done through that routine screening. And I noted and I compared them before the water switched to after the water switched. And what I saw was contrary to every trend that was happening at the state level, national level, and even our city level, um, where levels had been coming down gradually, that there was an increase in the percentage of kids with elevated lead levels, and it directly correlated with where the water lead levels were the highest. Um, That research uh, eventually was published um, uh, and that's what was released, Um, but it was also a gross underestimation of exposure because lead in water impacts a younger age group that is not picked up by routine screening. Lead in water isn't a vehicle made for ingestion. We're meant to drink water. We're not meant to eat chips, even paint chips, but kids do it, Um, but it impacts especially uh, the unborn, um, and it also impacts especially those babies who are drinking formula mixed with this water, and we have terrible breastfeeding rates. Um, Lead in your blood has a short half-life, a short window of detection, so a lot of kids either weren't screened at all, or, and they weren't screened at the right ages. So that's why we've treated this as a population-wide exposure. And everybody is getting the benefit of all the resources. We were just funded by the CDC to build a Flint registry, very much modeled after like the World Trade Center registry and other big exposure registries, where we will be able to objectively, in a population-level way, epidemiology way, answer how our Flint people doing, but more importantly, get them connected to the resources so that we do not see the consequences. We ethically cannot sit back and say, this is the consequences of this crisis. We are proactively preventing, uh, trying to make sure that we don't see those consequences. And that's the data um, and the neurodevelopmental assessment work that we hope to share in the future.
1: Um, thank you very much uh, for coming, Dr. Mona.
2: Um, I, in your educator
0: hat, um, f- there are a lot of young people here, myself included, early on in their careers. What advice do you have um, in terms of being involved in advocacy and standing up for what you perceive as injustice?
2: It is your job. No matter what profession you go into, it is your job. We um, so often go about our busy lives, as I was, as um, like punching in, punching out, automatons, this is my work, I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna do this, I have Girl Scouts, I have soccer, this and that. Um, and we're blinded, we, are, we close our eyes to the injustices happening all around us. And it's not Flint, it's everywhere. There are significant disparities and issues that need to be addressed. Open your eyes, but it's not enough to just open your eyes. You need to be involved, you need to be active, you need to vote, Uh, you need to to have your voice and your opinions heard. I am so hopeful for your guys, this generation, you need to fix our problems. (laughs) Um, And we are seeing tremendous leadership right now from our youth, we have a youth advisory committee that informs all of our work. Children are telling us what to do. Uh, look at the Parkland kids. Uh, there are, it, is, it is up to you guys um, to fix the incredible uh, problems that we have created. Uh, so we need to listen to our kids, we need to value them, uh, and we need to encourage them to be loud and to be stubborn and to speak up. And also, I, the other advice I would give is that you're never alone. Uh, and all these, often in these fights, you think that you're, you're alone. Uh, this story and what this book also really shows is that Um, there's a lot of folks who who are in the same fight as you. And I used to think pediatricians had a monopoly on caring for children. Like, there's nobody else who cares about kids as much as pediatricians do. But I was wrong, because my team included a water scientist and a journalist and moms and activists and other folks who cared as much as I do. So get out of your silos and work with other folks who care.
0: Good afternoon, my name is George Cruz and I'm really honored and pleased to represent the immigration law firm of Margaret Wagner Associates, and to convey her best regards to you, and uh, you. she know about the sorry she couldn't be here today. Uh, and again, uh, to commend you, and this a great work that job. you, you have job. done. And I can call you as an immigrant like your neighbor, former neighbor in Syria on the Iraqi borders to continue my, my immigration story, and I was inspired, by the way, I have to say it, by Mrs. Wang, who mm-hmm. was my advisor when I came to this country 30 years ago at the school, and now I'm working for her, I'm, I'm very pleased and, and honored to work for her, and to spread the message of, as, as an immigration law firm, we are a voice for the voiceless, awesome. and you mm-hmm. are a hero for the children, and as we call our mm-hmm. boss, Mrs. Okay. Wang, a champion for immigrants, so we awesome. are one of them. So again, make it short now, my question is you He's did mention question, earlier. <yeah>. I'm sorry, I tried, <laughs> I can't awesome. help, but you know, thank you, it. and I'll say about that. <laughs> shukran uh, is thank you in Arabic, so shukran. Okay, thank you, Shukran. <laughs> um, and So you mentioned earlier that we have crises along the lines of what you have done, the great research and work that you have done, uh, crises of democracy and democracy, and, and could you elaborate on that and what crises, especially now immigration issues that's facing all of us, yeah. especially immigrants and even non-immigrants? could you elaborate on that and, and yeah. mention about the social so, injustice that is?
2: Absolutely, yeah. so that's a that's a big question, but in terms of democracy. So um, our very clear democracy issue in, in Flint was, Um, We had no democracy. We were literally under state-appointed emergency management. And at one point in Michigan in 2013, half of our African-American population was under an emergency manager rule compared to 2% of the white population. So grossly undemocratic. They'd come in. uh, They'd cut pensions and sever contracts um, and with no accountability and, and unelected officials um, usurping democracy. Um, but it's, it's similar to what we see in other places. So Michigan is one of the ma- most gerrymandered states. You vote for more, for more Democrats, more Republicans get elected. Uh, but that, that a clear example of, of where democracy, where your vote doesn't have Um, clear representation, Um, voter disenfranchisement efforts that are happening everywhere. We're making it harder for people to to articulate their vote. Um, And I mean, the immigration issue is is an even bigger issue, Uh, but lots of of opportunities for us to continue to use our voices um, and continue to make sure that we have an inclusive society that is held um, accountable to all. So, If if another lead issue was to occur somewhere, where it's everywhere. I I Mm know Sorry, sorry. (laughs) But if if it was to happen again, where like where where do you think the next place would be where it occurs? Yeah, so lead is known as a silent pediatric epidemic. It's happening everywhere, and, it, and just like many environmental health issues or environmental exposures, we don't see it. Like I wish somebody who had lead exposure had like raised purple spots, then we'd know right away. But we don't see it. We don't see it for years, if not decades. And when we do see it, the the, the consequences are multifactorial. Like was the kid the kid got diagnosed with ADHD? Was it the lead? Was he always supposed to have ADHD? Was there another reason? Um, so so it's it's the you know it's it's everywhere. but we need to kind of open our eyes, another reference to the title of the book, um, to see see these issues. But more importantly, we need to be proactive and preventative. We need to make sure that we are finding it in the environment before our children are exposed. Um, And like I said, it's everywhere because it was used in paint, it was used in soil, it was used in plumbing, it's a heavy metal, it persists, that's why it was used so much, it was was malleable. Uh, So we have to put in that investment to to get it out of there in the first place.
1: Thank, thank you so much for um, illustrating the process of you yourself stepping out of your bubble, something that we can all hopefully hold on to and remember that it's our own personal activism that really does make the difference. And your stepping out of that bubble certainly um, popped a much bigger, more corrupt bubble, and thank you for that. Thank you. Um, what, what is the nature of the anti-corrosive chemicals that you mentioned? that we're, apparently, all the rest of us are drinking um, mm-hmm. as we prevent this lead mm-hmm. exposure.
2: Yeah, so I've learned, I feel like I've taken a, like a crash course in like water treatment, and there's some actually some water people here, so they might even be able to answer that better than I am. Uh, so the the corrosion control, it's a corrosion inhibitor, it's a phosphate, so very much like uh, what's in milk and Diet Co- or Coke and different things. So it is used to kind of create a protective scale in our plumbing. Uh, so that whatever's in the plumbing doesn't come out of our plumbing. That's one of many things in water treatment. Water treatment also has disinfectants, like we learned from John Snow, to kill bacteria and different things. Um, so water, so uh, there's also like fluoride, there's lots of things in our water treatment. It's an art, and the art of it really depends on your source water and what you need to add to it to, to make it uh, comply with regulations and protect public health. Good afternoon. I'm Colleen Cotter from the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. And my question for you, you told the story about power not listening and science really finally getting their attention. Do you have any stories of hope for us in Cleveland of individuals who had power who became advocates and really turned this around? Because it's you know it's um, terrific. Clearly, you have the power of science, but you didn't have the power of being elected official or lots of money to really change things. So do you have that story from Flint for us? Sure. So I think a, a lot of what um, so ultimately, like I said, science really spoke truth about power, but it wasn't the science alone. It, it was also the media. So after my press conference, there's like been these like Google trends of like the highest peak in Flint water crisis stories. The media finally started to pay attention. So was it because of the media and the international embarrassment that we came that the state finally conceded? I think that was part of it too. Um, so uh, there's a lot of you need to make friends in the media. So you need you need to work with colleagues in, in journalism. Uh, the Society for Environmental Journalists is actually holding their their national conference now in Flint. Um, there's been many reports about the Flint water crisis and what was what the bad things that happened, but the good things that happened. And something that was highlighted was the role of the investigative journalists. So because of our lack loss of democracy. The Ford Foundation, for the very first time, funded our Michigan ACLU to hire an investigative journalist to report on the consequences of the loss of democracy. Uh, an incredible, incredible reporter. And he was highlighted in this water crisis because he got access to this leaked memo from the EPA. And he dug and he dug and dug and dug and, and tried to uncover this story and what was happening. It was his articles that that I first read as well. Um, so there's. So journalists have played an incredible role. Um, I I also talk in my book about the role of um, a physician, uh, an amazing physician in the 1920s. Her name is Alice Hamilton, and she used to fight She was a world expert on lead. She was the first professor that was granted um, admission to Harvard, first female professor at Harvard, Uh, but they wouldn't give her football tickets, and she couldn't and she couldn't march in the graduation ceremonies. Anyways, so she. she fought against um, Kettering who put lead in gasoline uh, and, and you know, called him out and eventually used the media to her advantage and to highlight all these you know, toxic cases of lead exposure. Um, so I think that was probably one of the biggest things is, is working closely. Uh, with media who need a lot of education too it's complicated science you know they're like oh you know there's a there's a lead issue and oh look the blood levels don't show anything yeah but the half-life of blood is really short so you might not see anything it doesn't matter anyways but the blood so there's a lot of education and, and rapport building relationships that need to be created
0: what's your favorite part of being a pediatrician and what advice do you have for people who want to be pediatric nurses and pediatricians?
2: Awesome, my favorite, that's a great question. My favorite part about being a pediatrician is hanging out with kids. So it is, it is the best job in the world. Um, pediatricians, like there's research done on different medical professions. We are the happiest profession uh, of all medical specialties. Uh, It is the most rewarding career. I get to take care of kids to make sure, like I said, they're healthy today, but we protect the potential of kids to make sure that they have the brightest future possible. It is the kids that I take care of every day that inspire me to do this work, and I, I take direction from them, you guys are absolutely leading the way. Um, so, if you want to be a pediatrician, um, do good in school, do your homework. Uh, the the tests never end, um, but it is absolutely the most rewarding um, rewarding profession. Is to uh, to have a family and trust you with the care of your child, and then to be able to advocate for those kids at an even broader level. Good luck. Hi, we have actually been lucky enough here in Cleveland to have great reporting on the, on the crisis great. as well, but we've still struggled to educate residents and parents about the danger and empower them to get involved in the solution. What did it take in Cleveland, or in Flint, excuse me, to get um, residents and parents aware of the dangers and really involved? Yeah, so it was backwards. So the residents were aware of the issue before the medical community got aware of the issue. The medical community came late to the game. Uh, and the press came late to the game. It was our residents who are the heroes of the story because they knew something was wrong. They didn't, may not have known it was lead, but they knew something was wrong and they were the ones that were engaged and loud and activated. Um, and then when they did, finally know kind of the science of what was in the water, the, the lead, um, they have been part of all of our work. So all of our work moving forward has been community informed, community driven, and community participatory. You cannot do this work as an academic or an institution saying this is what's best for you. It has to be hand in hand with the community. Um, and I think that's an incredible level. So we formalized that. I talked about this youth advisory council we have, kids advising us. We also have a parent partner group, or parents are, are part of all of our work. And yeah, and we have residents and activists that are part of all of all of our ongoing work. So, so it has to be grassroots. It has to be peer to peer, or it's it's in a, especially in a climate like Flint where nobody's trusted, where trust is gone and shattered. Um, it needs to be uh, a close relationship.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So today at the City Club, we have uh, been listening to Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, director of the Pediatric Residency Program at Hurley Medical Center and author of What the Eyes Don't See, A Story of Crisis, Resistance, and Hope in an American City. The sale of Dr. Hanna-Attisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See, A Story of Crisis, Resistance, and Hope in an American City, uh, is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you so much, Dr. Mona Hana Atisha. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. And this forum is now adjourned.
0: For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts at the City Club, go to CityClub.org.